Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Hebrews chapter 10, 35 and 36. Ready? So do not throw away your confidence, for it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. You need to persevere. You need to do the will of God so that when you've done the will of God. Now, there's a big question. What is God's will? What does God want with me? What does God want from me? How do I please the God of the universe? What is God's will? These are big questions that every human being asks. And if people stopped asking them, it's because they stopped asking them. There's a, something that's happened. They've gotten discouraged or whatever. But I'm convinced every single one of us asks these questions at some point in our lifetime. What is God's will for my life? Now, a lot of people will tell you, you can find that on your own. You know, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. You're okay. I'm okay. Something about the will of God and the consequences around it lead me to think that I probably don't want to leave it to chance. Like, there's not really room for creativity in trying to find the will of God. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, because we're talking about eternity here. I'm talking about whether I spend forever in heaven or forever in hell. Like, those are big consequences. So, like, there's some things that you can be creative with, but there's other things you can't be, right? Like, if, you're, if it's an art project, hey, use whatever color you want to use, Picasso. You know, if you want one eyeball here and the other eyeball over there, whatever floats your boat. It's only a painting. But if you're flying an airplane, do you really want to get on an airplane where the engineers and the mechanics, you know, they just... They needed some room for creative expression, and he just decided to put the wing this way and not that way. And There's no way I'm flying that plane. How about you? What I'm saying is there's some things where there's room for creative expression. There's other things where the consequences are too great, and you don't want to leave that to chance. And your forever and your relationship with the God of the universe, that's not something that you just want to make up and leave the chance. Thankfully, we don't have to leave it the chance because God has set up something called the priesthood. The priesthood. It's, it's an average, it's a human being, it's a Joe Schmo like you and me who have a relationship with God, who are able to represent him to others and represent them to him. The priesthood. And God instituted it. The problem is this. You're working with people. And when you're working with people, it's always flawed. Wouldn't you agree? Always flawed. Even the Bible admits this. Leviticus chapter 8 is when God institutes the priesthood. And it's where God sets up 
Aaron is the, he's the brother of Moses, and God makes him the first high priest in Israel. And then God sets it up and he says, okay, now all of Aaron's descendants from the tribe of Levi, you guys are always going to be priests in Israel. And that's what God set up. By the time you get to Leviticus chapter 10, two chapters later, the two sons of Aaron have screwed it up so badly, God strikes them dead. That's a rough start. Wouldn't you say? And from there, it goes from bad to worse throughout human history. Not just in Jewish history, but really any human history and any religious history. Any human priest. The priesthood has been fraught with all kinds of negative things, hasn't it? People have used their power and their position as priests, and they've abused it in leadership They've turned it into an opportunity for greed, some have. They've turned it into an opportunity for twisted sexual favors and yada, on and on and on it goes right up to our present day. Every one of us can think of examples right out of the headlines of priests that have abused their position. So what are we to make of it? Well, the lesson learned is this. It's a big job to represent God. And any old dork can't do it. We just can't. It's a big job to represent God. And we're bound to screw it up. But God is gracious. And so he continues to use priests. He continues to work through us. And thankfully, in the midst of all of the craziness, here comes Jesus. Jesus steps in as the quintessential, the perfect priest. Because who better to represent God than God himself. How about that? God steps into human history and says, here I am. Let me show you the way. He does it perfectly. So in the midst of all of the human priests that have messed it up royally over the years, there's Jesus, the one priest who has been perfect, faithful, merciful, the pastor of Hebrews calls it, faithful and merciful. See, and here's what he does. The pastor of Hebrews, now, we said last week as we started talking about this, he ran into a little bit of a problem when he was talking about Jesus as the priest. And it's not a problem that you and I think of because we just don't, it, our minds don't go there. But the pastor of Hebrews and the pastor himself, they were Jews. And so for them to hear that Jesus was a priest caused them an issue. Because in their mind, remember how I said a moment ago, God set up Aaron as the priest and all of his descendants were to be priests. They were from this tribe of Israel called Levi, the Levite tribe. Well, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And so these Jews in the book of Hebrews, they're thinking, mm, that's not adding up. How, does, how do we get Jesus to be a legitimate priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi? So the pastor of Hebrews does two things. First of all, he lays out, and we looked at this last week, we, he lays out just the characteristics of Jesus as a priest. Like he's a phenomenal priest, like in every way, shape, and form, does it awesome. And the second point that he makes is this. Jesus might not come from the tribe of Levi, but he does come from the order of this guy named Melchizedek. And so this morning, we're going to go there. Let's talk about Melchizedek. 
You say, oh, great, what did you do in church today? We talked about Melchizedek. There you are. Not somebody you hear about every other Sunday. But Melchizedek is a mysterious figure in the Bible. He's mysterious now, and he has always been mysterious. The, the truth is he's just as mysterious to the ancient Jews as he is to you and me. So if you don't get all your questions answered at all today about Melchizedek, it's okay. You're in great company. Nobody has all their questions answered. But that's part of the, part of the good thing. That's part of what the pastor of Hebrews is doing. It's almost like he's taking the mystique, the mystique that surrounds this guy, Melchizedek, and he's using it to make his point. Does that make sense? And it's, and it's pretty cool how he does it. In the process, he draws out two big truths that we don't want to miss. And sometimes we can miss them if we get caught up in the mystery of it all and the details of it all. So let me just give us the two big truths right off the bat so that we don't forget them and we don't miss them. We'll hit them now and then I'll return to them later. The, the big truths are this, that Jesus is a priest for all people for all time. That's really his message, that Jesus is a priest for all people, for all time. Now, let's get into it. Hebrews chapter 6. I'll start with verse 19. He starts there. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of... Go ahead, you just got to say it. It's kind of fun to say it, isn't it? Melchizedek, Melchizedek. He's a priest forever in that order, Melchizedek. Now these words, when he says... It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. You see that? That language doesn't really connect with you and me too much. But when the first audience heard this they would have totally been blown away by it. Let me, let me try to help bring us to the same spot, okay? He's referencing something that happened on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the one day, the highest, holiest day on the Jewish calendar. It's the one day when the entire nation of Israel would basically come before God asking for forgiveness of their sin, and it would be atoned for. Their sin would be covered, forgiven on this day of atonement. And it was a big deal. Everybody came to the temple for this. Like, try to picture in your mind, like, maybe you've seen it, like, um, on Christmas morning, how the Pope does his Christmas address to, the, to faithful Catholics in the Vatican Square. You ever seen those pictures? And it's just thousands of people packed in there, and they're shoulder to shoulder for the Pope's Christmas address. You've probably seen those pictures. That's what the temple would have looked like on the Day of Atonement. They are all there. It's a big deal. And they're packed in. And the high priest is in the, is in the front. He's got two goats. And the first goat he slaughters. And he takes the blood of the goat and he sprinkles it around the altar to, to symbolize the, the forgiveness of the sin. And then the second goat is called the scapegoat. And he puts his hand on the scapegoat, on the goat's head. And he basically symbolically transfers the sins of the people onto that goat. And then he chases the goat out into the wilderness. They literally kick it out of the community, symbolically carrying the sins of the people far away. And then the priest would take this thing of incense and he would go behind this curtain. And here's what he talks about. 
it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. There in Hebrews, the priest goes behind this curtain and he enters the holy of holies, the holiest place, the most sacred place in all of ancient Israel. Behind this thick curtain, you've got this four foot by four foot gilded gold box, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God Almighty amongst the people, living and dwelling with the people. And this place was so sacred that literally nobody went there. Only the high priest went there on the Day of Atonement. Nobody else could do it. It was so sacred. And the high priest would go in there, and it was so, like, scary that they literally put bells around the priest, the bottom of his robe, and then they tied a rope around his ankle. Because if he goes into the inner sanctuary and God struck him dead, nobody could go in and get him. They'd have to drag his body out through the curtain. So this entire, now picture this. You're packed in. He's done, he's, he's done the ceremony with the goats. Now he takes the incense, goes behind the curtain. And as the crowd, you are waiting there breathlessly. Will God forgive our sins? Has God received our offering? Or is the priest going to die? And we have to wait another year. And the crowd's waiting breathlessly for the news. Has God received our offering? And then the priest comes back out from around the... And you can almost picture a collective sigh of relief. And the priest expresses to the people that God has heard our prayer. He's forgiven our sin. We've been made right. And everybody cheers. It's a great day. Now, there's no hope in that. There's suspense. There's maybe a little fear, some worry. I, you know, here he says, we have this hope. Go back to Hebrews. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus has entered on our behalf. Why is our hope now strong and secure and like an anchor? Well, because I know the outcome. If Jesus is the one that's gone behind that curtain, I know how that's going to work out. My sins are forgiven. I've been made right. I've been made whole. It's his sacrifice. See, now I can put my hope in that. Does that make sense? My hope is in that. Not in maybe he's forgiven, but Jesus has said, no, I have done the work, I've paid the price, I've made the way. You can be forgiven if you receive me, receive my sacrifice on your behalf. You can be made right. You can be made whole. See? And the reason why he's an anchor and that we can trust in him, he says, is because he is from this order of Melchizedek. That's what the pastor of Hebrews is saying. Part of the reason why Jesus can be such a trusted anchor is because he's from this order of Melchizedek. So let's go there. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. I read it this way. He says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything, first the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. 
Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch, Abraham, gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires that the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their own fellow Israelites, even though they're also descended from Abraham. This man, however, Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who's declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So to get more context, you need to read Genesis 14. And if you want to turn your Bibles over there, you can right now. I don't have the time to read it, but I just want to tell us the story. But turn your Bibles to it and keep me honest, please. That's great. Genesis chapter 14 tells us the story of, of Melchizedek. It's where we meet him. Um, it's the one and only place that we meet him in the Bible. Okay, And here's the story. Abraham. You've heard Abraham. Abraham has a nephew by the name of Lot. It's a really dumb name, I know, but that was his name, Lot. So Abraham has a nephew named Lot, and Lot is living in the city of Sodom. Now tell me, is Sodom a good city, bad city? Bad city. It's known for its wickedness and its evil. So at one point, the king of Sodom and a couple of these other kings, they get together to go to war against these other kings. So you've got these kings fighting each other, and basically it was over money because this one king owed this other king money, and he wanted to get paid, and he said, no way. So he got his friends together, he got his friends together, and they did what kings did. They fought each other. And in the, more, in the course of the battle, they happened to take captive a bunch of prisoners of war, and Lot is one of the prisoners of war. From the city of Sodom. So now Abraham, he's not even in the battle. He's not involved in the fight, but he hears about it. He hears about his nephew, Lot, who gets taken captive in this war. And so Abraham musters up 318 men. Wrap your mind around that. The Bible says 318 men armed for war from his own household. Okay, this is not a couple of rednecks with pitchforks like, you know, Abraham, hey, guys, let's go fight. That's not what this is. It tells you Abraham was actually a prince in his own right. You know, a pretty powerful guy. He's got 300, he's got a small army, 318 men trained for war. They do a special op. They go at night. Basically, he wins. Abraham kicks butt, wins. And brings back all of this plunder and, bring, and rescues these prisoners of war, including his nephew Lot. And he brings them all back home. And it's a great day. Now, Abraham is coming back from the battle. And he's met by these two kings. One is the king of Sodom. Bera, king of Sodom. Now, the king of Sodom, keep the context, is a guy that just got his clock cleaned in battle. And a bunch of his people from his city were taken captive, and Abraham just rescued them, didn't he? So the king of Sodom technically owes Abraham a great deal, doesn't he? But instead of acknowledging that, the king of Sodom goes to Abraham and he says, I tell you what, how about we make a deal? Okay, I'll keep the people. People come to me, and you keep all the stuff, Abe. And Abraham says no. He rejects it flat out. He says no. 
king of Sodom, I want basically nothing to do with you. I don't want you to ever be able to say that you made me rich. So he distances himself from the king of Sodom. Why? He's a wicked guy. Abraham wants nothing to do with him. Now, with the king of Sodom, there's this other king, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who shows up as well. And you wonder, why would he even be there? Because he wasn't part of the fight. Like, he was, he's Switzerland. He's neutral. It's not even his fight. And yet he shows up after the fight. My theory is this. It's just a theory that Melchizedek sees the hand of God on Abraham. And because Melchizedek is also a man who worships and reveres God, he recognizes that in Abraham, and he comes to acknowledge it. That's what I think happens, technically. So he shows up, and Abraham sees him, and a couple of things happen in that encounter that are very priestly. First of all, the Bible says he's the priest of God Most High. Wow, okay. Secondly, it says that that he blessed Abraham. That was a priestly duty. Priests blessed, you know, blessed are thou. That's what the priest does. So Melchizedek does that with Abraham. And then the third thing he did was he received an offering from Abraham. Abraham gave 10% of the plunder to Melchizedek. That was also a priestly function. The priest receives the offering from the worshiper. See that? And so Melchizedek is this priest. And What's fascinating about him is he's not Jewish. Matter of fact, Melchizedek and Abraham predate Judaism. You know that Abraham wasn't a Jew either? He wasn't. He predates Judaism by about 450 to 500 years. See, um, look at the timeline. I kind of put, put it up for us on the screen so you can see it. Sometimes it helps just to see it in front of you. You see Abraham and Melchizedek. Here's where they live. Now, Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. So Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, he has 12 sons one of whom is named Levi, who became the father of the Levite clan. And then 450 years later, after that, comes Moses, who's a descendant from Levi. And Moses is the one who really formulized Judaism and the law of Judaism and the temple and the priesthood and all that sort of thing. So Moses came 500 or so years after so the point is this, Abraham, Melchizedek, they're not Jewish. But what you have is you have these two guys who are, um, they both worship God, God. And you have Abraham, and, and he, he becomes the father of the Jews, and the Messiah comes through his line, and all that we know about Abraham. But then you have Melchizedek, who also worshiped God, and we don't know anything else about this guy, where he came from, where he went to, but we know that he worshiped God. How do we know that? Well, Abraham endorsed him, didn't he? Now, if you're a Jew, how important is Abraham's endorsement to you? It's big, isn't it? Like, it's big. If Abraham says, hey, this guy's the real guy, you pay attention to that as a Jew because Abraham's so important to you. That's like LeBron James saying, hey, these sneakers are really awesome. 
hey, if LeBron James thinks they're awesome, then they must be awesome sneakers. He endorses them. Abraham says, Melchizedek, you're a priest of God. So now what happened is this. There's all this mystery around Melchizedek. And for years, it kind of grows. And it becomes part of Jewish folklore. You know how stories kind of take a life of their own? When you don't have any details, all you have is this one guy, Melchizedek, shows up mysteriously. And now, for the next thousand years, stories about Melchizedek kind of form in the Jewish mind. And you come all the way a thousand years later, you come up to King David. King David is writing, he's, he's uh, I don't think he knows he's doing it on purpose, but he writes Psalms 110. He doesn't call it Psalms 110, you understand that. We call it Psalms 110, but he's writing what became Psalms 110. And Psalms 110 is a psalm that looks ahead to the Messiah. It actually predicts it, it's looking to forward to the time when the Messiah is going to come on earth. And so King David is writing about this. In Psalms 110, verse 4, it says this of the Messiah. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So a thousand years after the fact, King David is thinking about this. This is how prevalent Melchizedek was in their mind. The Messiah to come is going to be a Messiah like Melchizedek. He's going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He didn't know what that was. It's part of their folklore. But now the timeline goes up a little bit further. You move back to the, go back to the timeline slide. Move the timeline up. Another thousand years. You come to the life of Jesus and his first followers in his ministry. And then shortly after Jesus, A.D. 65, you come to the writing of Hebrews. You come to this pastor and his struggling little flock. And, and, they're, and they're, you know, he's trying to keep his flock together and trying to keep them encouraged and trying to keep their faith fired up. And these people, and he's talking about how Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And this little congregation begins to put the dots together. They connect the dots. Do you see this in chapter 7? Look what he sees. Look what he says. In chapter 7, he goes, Melchizedek. Right. The name means king of righteousness. Jesus is righteous. And Melchizedek, he's the king of Salem. Huh. Salem, well, that means peace. Jesus is peace. And then, oh, Melchizedek. You see this, this is verse, uh, verse 3. Melchizedek, without father or mother. He doesn't have a genealogy. He's kind of mysterious. Where did this guy come from? Where did he go? We don't know. Jesus is kind of like that. Wow. In the passage of Hebrews, his mind, you can just start to see like the, as the dots get connected. Jesus is, an, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he gets so excited, he gets kind of Star Trek-y, I think, on us, long before Star Trek ever happened. But you look at verse 9 and 10, it's kind of Star Trek-y. He starts talking about how Abraham paid the tithe to Melchizedek. And he goes, yeah, but technically then, if Levi was a, you know, a great-great-grandson of Abraham, and Levi is the priest, and they were paying tithes to Levi because he's the priest, well, then if Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, that must mean 
Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was in Abraham's loins, so to speak, at the time. You see how he does it? He goes, wow, so if Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, that means that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And if Jesus comes from the priesthood, not from Levi, but from Melchizedek, that means that Jesus must be a better priest than Levi. You see his logic? And here's the point. Melchizedek was not a Jew. And if Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek, then it means that Jesus is not a priest just for Jewish people. He's a priest for all people, available to anybody. And the pastor of Hebrews, I think he gets excited. In, ch in chapter 7, verses 11 through 25, I won't take the time to read them, but can we just buzz down to verse 22? And he talks about how Jesus becomes a priest with an oath. He says, verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. In other words, remember, remember how Abraham was endorsed, Abraham endorsed Melchizedek as a priest? Verse 20 through 22, the pastor of Hebrews is saying God endorsed Jesus as a priest because God instituted him as a priest with an oath. You see that? So Jesus has that. God's like, this is the guy. Would you like a faithful priest? Would you like somebody to actually show you how to get there? Jesus is the guy. That's what he's saying. And then we come to verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death set them and prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever... He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. See that? Save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So here's God endorsing Jesus as a permanent priest. You see, we have two lines of priesthood. Do you see that? That's this next slide. We've got the one that comes from Aaron. Aaron the high priest and then his sons and all their sons and all their sons. And we know everything we need to know about those guys because they're just like you and me, right? They've got a history. They're a couple thousand years old at this point. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. You've got faithful ones. You've got not so faithful ones. And we know how that works. And then there's this other priesthood, Melchizedek. It's only got two names on the list. Melchizedek, Jesus, both, both permanent priests, faithful, Jesus faithful, he's consistent, he's, God has endorsed him himself. You want to know how to get there? Jesus, Jesus is the guy, Jesus is the guy. And he's always serving in that role. Never stop serving in that role. You see what verse, read this out loud. Read verse 25 with me. It's a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely. So do I want a priest that just gives, gets me halfway there? Or do I want one who can get me all the way there? What would you like? I want the one that can get me all the way there. Jesus is a priest for all people, for all time. And here's why this is good. I'm going to close with this because we got baptism. Here we go. This is a good thing for you and me. 
And here's why. Because the rules don't change. Look at, we all know stories of human priests and their abuses. And, you know, I mean, you've got one priest that says, uh, you know, if you pay enough money, we can get that sin forgiven. And, you know, if, you, if, you got an, if, you, if you're rich enough, we can get you an annulment. Oh, but if you're not, oh, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Now you can't take communion forever and ever, or else you're an adulterer. This priest says, this priest says, oh, we're open and affirming. This priest says, well, that's a sin. This priest says, there is no hell. This priest says, the hell there isn't, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> but bum I did not make that up. I've seen that on signs. There we are. Right? We have, my point is, we have these priests, and they're all telling you something different. Have you noticed that? And if you notice, I'm not just talking about even in the church. Like, culture has its priests. They're all, they're all pretending to be experts, or, and they're all trying to tell you, this is the right way. No, this is the right way. No, this is the right way. No, I have the inside scoop. No, I have the inside scoop. And they're all arguing about who has the better way. Have you noticed that? All these different priests... And if you notice the common thread in every one of them, they're flawed. Every one of them, because they're human. And so the choice that we have before us this morning, that the pastor of Hebrews puts to us is, what will you choose? Will you continue to listen to all these other priests, or will you ignore them and go to the one who actually knows what he's talking about? See, I propose to you this morning that part of the reason why our culture is so confused and so chaotic and why so many people are so anxious these days is because we've thrown out the one priest who knows what the heck he's doing. Can I say it again? Part of the reason why our culture, why so many people are so confused, so chaotic, so anxious, so messed up these days is because as a culture, we've thrown out the one priest that knows what he's doing. Do you see the need for a priest? Yes. Because God is too big for you and me to just go on our own. And the consequences are too great for you and me to just leave up the chance. So I want the one priest who knows what he's doing, friends. And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. I wanted to read these out loud because this finishes the chapter. But look at this. Say this with me, okay? Read it with me. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, Set apart from sinners, he's exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he sacrificed himself. 
Amen, right? Let that sink in. He doesn't need, I love that, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day. He's faithful and he's merciful. That's what we talked about last week and it comes back this Sunday as well. He's faithful and he's merciful. You and I need this because here's the deal. Have you ever had those days where you just say, ah, screw it. Anybody had a just screw it day? Right. A day that you go, this is just not worth it. This is just not. I'm out. I'm out. This is right. On those days, you have a priest. Jesus is a permanent priest. And instead of just wallowing in your just screw itness, how's that for a word? Turn to Jesus, the priest. You've got a priest that says, you know what? I get it. I get it. You're ready to give up today. I got it. I'm with you. I got this. Okay. So you hang on to him. You know, when, when, you're, when you're bombarded with confusing messages, the world's telling you, this is right. No, this is right. That's wrong. This is right. Da, 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 da. The rules are constantly changing in the world. And, and, you, and you get confused. Where do I turn? Jesus. Turn to him. Look at him. He, he can say, you know what? Here's what's right. Let me show you. I got, this is how it goes. He will walk with you through it. See? And can I tell you this? That, you know, and Bud and I were talking about this this morning when we were praying for us today. You know, the, the, the scary thing is that you and I are called priests. We're a kingdom of priests as followers of Jesus, right? So you and I represent him to the world, right? But can I tell you that the only human priest worthy of following is the human priest who bows to Jesus. That's the only priest that you want to follow. I, I wouldn't trust any man or woman who doesn't hold up Jesus as supreme. I wouldn't do it because they're going to mislead you. And even somebody with a good heart, even somebody desiring to hold up Jesus as the king, we're still flawed, aren't we? And we're still going to mess it up. But on those days that we mess it up, here's the difference. We say, you know what? Jesus, is he's actually the faithful one. You want to look to him. Don't be following me around. Look at him. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.